0: Thanks for tuning in. This edition of Outcasting will begin in a few moments. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, formerly WDFH Westchester Public Radio, non-commercial, non-profit, and volunteer-powered. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. And now, Outcasting.
1: LGBT history is not only not talked about in schools, but it's erased from history books where there are a lot of uh, people who we hear about in history who did identify as LGBT or who did have sexual relations with men or women or both and it's never mentioned uh, so you know you get people like Walt Whitman and James Baldwin and you know these, these people who you hear a lot about um, and you have these great opportunities to be able to sort of normalize uh, you know LGBTI identity by acknowledging that these were people who were prominent people in history who did amazing things who also happened to be gay and uh, it is very very rare that you know high schools will even touch on those subjects
2: This is Outcasting Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported, independent producer based in New York, online at mfpg.org. Hi, I'm Josh. On the last edition of Outcasting, we heard an abridged version of the play Queering History, written by Maggie Keenan-Bolger in collaboration with LGBTQ homeless youth. The play focuses on the general absence of LGBTQ curriculum in our public schools. You can hear this performance by going to mfpg.org and clicking on Outcasting Listen. On this edition, Outcaster Travis talks with Maggie about the play and about her work with LGBTQ youth at the New York City Division of Green Chimneys. Thank
3: you so much for joining us today, Maggie.
1: Thank you for having me.
3: How did you get involved with LGBT youth?
1: Um, you know, I have always had a passion for working with uh, with young people um, and especially LGBT youth. Uh, growing up, I was an LGBT youth uh, and I definitely uh, was looking for support in many ways. And I feel like I am now sort of able to give young people the support that I wish I had when I was younger.
3: And you work at Green Chimneys. Can you tell us a little bit about what Green Chimneys does?
1: Sure. Green Chimneys is a great organization that's located, uh, they actually have a number of different branches. The one that I work for is in New York City. And uh, they work primarily with LGBT youth who are homeless or in foster care. And they have uh, a number of residences for them there uh, so that they are able to uh, have, you know, stable and secure homes where they can go to. Um, they also have a lot of programming that goes on. So a lot of life skills stuff, you know, making sure that That they can get jobs and get into schools and things like that. Um, So, sort of, you know, helping them get on their feet and uh, get ready for the real world.
3: What do you think are some of the best ways that Green Chimneys has
1: helped LGBT youth? You know, I think it's uh, most of the young people who are coming to uh, Green Chimneys have been kicked out of their homes because of their sexual orientation. And I think uh, in so many ways, having a place that says we will accept you, whoever you are, and in whatever way uh, you come and, uh, you know, not only tolerate you, but celebrate you, um, I think is a really huge thing. Um, Also, I think just being able to meet adults who are supportive and caring and who are LGBT themselves. Uh, is really important. Um, and, you know, all of that is even secondary to, uh, you know, finding a place to be, a place to, to be in a home where you don't have to sleep on the streets and uh, don't have to uh, couch hop and things like that.
3: Now, Green Chimneys isn't the only uh, organization in New York City that deals with LGBT homeless youth even. But what kind of makes Green Chimneys special or different?
1: You know, uh, one of the things that I like most about Green Chimneys is that they're really focused not on just uh, making sure that the young people have, uh, you know, the the homes that they need and the food that they need, but also making sure that they're cared for psychologically. Um, you know, obviously... Teenagers in general have a lot going on and have a lot, uh, you know, a lot of problems and things like that. And, you know, teenagers who are now without the support of parents, who should be doing the job of supporting them and helping them through high school and through college applications and things like that. Um, they These young people don't have that support.
3: And it provides uh, shelter for Mm-hmm. Homeless youth.
1: Yes. Can you yeah. Talk
3: a little bit about that.
1: Sure. They have um, different programming. Uh, they actually recently have faced uh, pretty severe budget cuts and had to shut down their transitional independent living program, which was one of their main sort of uh, focuses. Which is really, you know, a pretty major cut to uh, to what they're doing. Um, but they right now uh, they have a residence in Gramercy that houses uh, sort of dorm style a number of youth, um, and their staff there 24 hours a day, and then they have Uh, also a more transitional living program, where uh, they uh, get put up in apartments uh, with roommates and things like that. And the staff, you know, come in and check every now and then, but they're pretty much uh, on their own. And they, you know, come to the offices for programming and for uh, assistance. And a lot of them also work in the offices. Um, And uh, but otherwise, they, you know, have to take care of their own groceries and, and everything like that.
3: So on our last edition of Outcasting, we heard your play Queering History in a sort of abridged version. And it was all about LGBT history and sort of the lack of it in our education system. But where did the idea to write about LGBT history come from?
1: Um, I was actually really lucky in that I received a uh, scholarship from the Point Foundation and the Pallet Fund, which are two really excellent uh LGBT organizations that do a lot of supporting LGBT youth. And uh, they basically uh, said, you know, we will pay for you to work at any uh, LGBT organization uh, that you would like. And uh, so I was sort of able to start with a clean slate and, uh, you know, proposed Green Chimneys, what was of interest to me. And uh, I think what sort of led me to the LGBT history component was that Um, I feel like we're reaching a time in our history now where we're losing a lot of the people who were folks who lived through, you know, Stonewall riots and were the people who, you know, really lived the history as it was, quote unquote, beginning. Obviously, it had, you know, existed for for many, many centuries before that, but a lot of, um, you know, the really uh, prominent, uh, more recent stuff. Um, And so I thought it was really important that... uh, those voices be heard. Um, I also know that there's a big disconnect uh, among generations of LGBT people. um, And, you know, a lot of the youth don't get a lot of time to talk to the LGBT elders. And, you know, the people in the middle don't get a lot of time to talk to each other. And so um, being able to bring together a community of LGBT people of all ages and sort of be like, you know, all right, what is our history? Because I think history has sort of been a very exclusionary thing where, uh, you know, a lot of people are left out. And uh, so being able to to bring a diverse group of people together and say what's important to us and what is this history that we want to create for ourselves.
3: And why do you think there is sort of a generational gap in the LGBT community?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I was just listening to a, a podcast about this. I think that there's a lot of... Um, a lot of resentment on both sides, um, you know, with uh, with young people not feeling like they're being heard in their, you know, fluidity of gender and fluidity of um, of sexuality and things like that. And older people saying we fought so hard for these labels and now, you know, you, you won't identify as gay, which is what we really wanted, you know, to be able to do in our time. And uh, I also think that there's just not very many opportunities for for those dialogues to happen. You know, it's really uncommon to be in a room full of LGBT people who are of all different ages. You know, most uh, LGBT groups that exist are pretty age specific. You know, you have youth groups or you have elder groups or you have, you know, 20-somethings or 30-somethings. And so you really need to sort of work to create spaces where everyone is welcome and encouraged to participate and to, you know, be heard and to uh, exist in a space together. Um, And, uh, you know, there's also such an interesting thing about, you know, if gay older gay men are in, you know, a bar with younger gay men, then there's suddenly this weird predatory thing that that comes up where, you know, there's a bad assumption that's sort of been a historical assumption of, you know, older gay men wanting to, you know, take advantage of younger people, which is obviously not something that is, you know, I uh, the case in in uh, so many so many situations, but it's something that, you know, our sort of homophobic society has perpetuated.
3: And do you think that's this is all why, like, the main character in queering history, Emma, felt like she couldn't identify
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, that's a big part of it. And also just the fact that LGBT history is not only not talked about in schools, but it's erased from history books where there are a lot of uh, people who we hear about in history who did identify as LGBT or who did have sexual relations with men or women or both and it's never mentioned. Uh, so, you know, you get people like Walt Whitman and James Baldwin and, you know, these, these people who you hear a lot about. Um, and you have these great opportunities to be able to sort of normalize, uh, you know, LGBTI identity by acknowledging that these were people who were prominent people in history who did amazing things who also happened to be gay. And uh, it is very, very rare that, you know, high schools will even touch on those subjects.
3: A few additions ago on Outcasting, we were talking with Mark Leno, California state senator, who sponsored the FAIR Act, which would require uh, schools in California to educate their students on LGBT history. Do you think that's really what's moving the world forward?
1: Yeah, I mean, I sure hope so. And I think, you know, it also has a lot to do with how it's taught. Um, And I think that, you know, the more that people are able to familiarize themselves with it and the more people are able to hear about it and realize that, you know, we've been learning about these people in these events all along that had a, a big LGBT component, um, that, yeah, I think that will do good things for, for making LGBT youth feel more comfortable in schools and uh, for creating, you know, more aware and informed adults.
3: Maggie, the play addressed... Uh, LGBT history, but there are so many other issues in the LGBT community specifically, safe sex, bullying, marriage equality, even just trans rights you could talk about. Are there any that you in particular want to tackle?
1: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I would be more than happy to write plays about all of those things. Um, I feel like uh, for better or for worse, bullying right now is getting, I think, a lot of press. Um, And I think that A lot of people say that, you know, bullying is bad. It shouldn't happen. But often they don't talk about what can be done to prevent. And I think that, you know, learning about LGBT history and learning about those things is one of those things that could be done to prevent uh, bullying. Um, And same with suicide where, you know, if kids know that there are people who are like them who have existed and done great things in the world, then they're less likely to feel like there's no hope for them. Um, So I think that, you know... All of those issues are so interwoven with one another. And uh, hopefully the small progress that we make in certain areas will impact the others as well.
3: What do you think it is about theater that makes it the best vehicle to send these messages?
1: Uh, I think theater is a really accessible form. It allows people to connect with characters in a way that they wouldn't be able to uh, by just reading a textbook. Um, you suddenly have a person in front of you who is a real live person because it's live theater and uh, you're asked to connect with them in particular ways. Um, and uh, you're in a room full of people who are doing the exact same thing. And I think a lot of what theater is to me is about sort of building community and coming together and creating something. And uh, I think that once you get the audience there, they become a part of the creation as well. And so, uh, you know, if this whole audience is mobilized towards, you know, making things better for LGBT youth or informing themselves about, you know, LGBT history, then uh, you suddenly have this whole new room of people who know so much more about something than they did coming into it.
3: When you were writing the play, how did you involve youth?
1: Um, so they were involved pretty much at all uh, points of the of the process. I basically started meeting with them uh, from the very beginning and was pretty much like, OK, uh, this is sort of what I'm thinking of doing. What are you interested in or how are you interested in being a part of this? And some of them just wanted to perform. Some of them just wanted to write. Some of them wanted to do it all. You know, we had uh, uh, sort of all levels of, of interest and engagement. Um, we also did a number of workshops with... Uh, a variety of LGBTQ individuals. So I brought in, uh, again, a diverse population of LGBT folks from outside of Green Chimneys. And uh, they worked right alongside the youth at Green Chimneys, sort of brainstorming ideas of what we want to see in this show. And, uh, you know, sort of figuring out what's usually missing from our history and how can we make that happen. Um, So uh, a lot of you participated in those workshops. Uh, We also had two who performed on stage with us. Um, And, uh, yeah, I sort of met uh, weekly or every two weeks with uh, the young people, depending on how uh, interested they were in being involved. And, uh, you know, was constantly, you know, throwing ideas at them. And they were throwing ideas at me and shaping the piece in a way that it definitely wouldn't have gotten to had it just been me writing it.
3: Is there any reason why you wanted to do queering history with youth instead of theater professionals?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that um, when theater is created by non-professional uh, actors, um, then you it sort of adds a new level of intimacy to it. Um, and particularly because these were the young people who were being most affected by this particular issue. Um, you know, these were the young people who had to go to school every day and who had to, uh, you know, sit in those classes and not hear about anyone who was like them. Um, so I think they had a really upfront and unique perspective on the situation and were able to uh, really drive forward sort of the emotional uh, depths of the character because it existed in them.
3: And the voice of Emma, where did she sort of come from? Because compared to the sort of caricatures of LGBT figures, she seems very three-dimensional and very real.
1: Yeah, yeah. She was definitely meant to be sort of the protagonist of the piece and sort of the person who the audience can identify with and is sort of, you know, caught in this crazy uh, world of, uh, you know, these wild figures. Um, And uh, she... uh, is inspired by a lot of different things. I mean, certainly myself as a young person in high school, um, where you know I was out and the only out person in my high school, and sort of dealing with that, never feeling like it was a terrible situation, but also never feeling like it was good. Um, so definitely feeling like there is a loss uh, in what my high school could have done to support me, but also uh, you know being thankful that it wasn't as bad as uh, what a lot of people had to face Um, so yeah and then you know the young people who I worked with definitely always influence uh, the characters as well
2: This is Outcasting Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program where you don't have to be queer to be here Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener supported independent producer based in New York online at mfpg.org On the last edition of Outcasting, we heard an abridged version of the play, Queering History, written by Maggie Keenan-Bolger in collaboration with LGBTQ homeless youth. The play focuses on the general absence of LGBTQ curriculum in our public schools. You can hear this performance by going to mfpg.org and clicking on Outcasting Listen. On this edition, Outcaster Travis talks with Maggie about the play,
3: How did you go about writing the piece? There's a bunch of testimonials in it. There's just the general LGBT history.
1: Yeah. uh, So I like to joke that it makes, well, not really joke. It takes a village to write a play. And this play was definitely written by a village. Uh, To say it was written by me is actually not even all that accurate uh, because There were a number of ways that I sort of gathered information and materials. Uh, One was through a survey, which I put out um, on Facebook and various social media sites that uh, got over 300 responses from people all over the world, actually, uh, sort of asking them questions about LGBT history and their high school experiences and things like that. Um, I also did inter- individual interviews with a number of people, um, sort of asking similar questions and, and sort of gathering stories in that way. Uh, the workshops were a really big source of, of information and material, um, and uh From there, you know, the young people wrote uh, a number of uh, sections in there. I also had, uh, you know, other friends come in and sort of pitch in when I was like, I have to write a brief history of LGBT, you know, uh, people in three minutes and I have no idea where to start. And so a friend of mine was like, that sounds like fun. I'll do that. Um, So it was very much a community based process um, as well as product.
3: Were there any reoccurring themes you saw in the surveys that you did in the interviews?
1: it's interesting. One of the, one of the questions that I asked that is sort of the, the main ending of the show is, uh, what advice would you give to yourself, uh, as a younger person? Um, and a lot of people just saying, you know, hang in there, um, and don't take yourself too seriously, have fun when you can, um, and know that, uh, there's a community for you um, and that it's not going to be easy to find it and that, you know, yes, it gets better, but it doesn't get better automatically and it doesn't get better, you know, in an instant, but that, you know, there is hope and that we need you to continue on to uh, to be the next sort of generation of, of LGBT people.
3: Do you think there's anything wrong with the it? it gets better message or do you...
1: Um, I mean, I made an It Gets Better video. um, And I think that it is a really important message to get out there. Uh, That said, I think it's simplified, um, just in, in the sense that, you know, any, I think, political movement has to be simplified to a certain extent. Um, one of the things I find really interesting is how it's been sort of watered down in many communities where it's no longer specifically addressing LGBTQ bullying, but it's sort of this sort of overarching bullying uh, message, um, which I think is important in some ways, but is also ignoring uh, what it was set out to to accomplish. And I think it's sort of a way of making it more, quote unquote, acceptable for for people, which I don't think it should be, because I think that, you know, it started out with this really great base of wanting to help LGBT youth. Um, I also think that, yeah, you know, it's important to say that you're not going to wave a magic wand and it's not going to, you know, magically get better when you go to college or when you go to, uh, to, uh, you know, out into the real world. That it's going to be hard, <laughs> you know, all the way through it's going to be hard, but it's going to get less hard. Um, and, you know, the truth is for some people it doesn't get better. And I think that that's a really hard thing to recognize. And I think that especially people who uh, are marginalized in our communities already will come up against quite a lot. Um, However, I think that for the majority of LGBT people out there, like, absolutely, there is hope. And I am so much happier now than I was in high school. And, uh, you know, I think that all of my friends would agree with that as well.
3: The play had two really moving monologues, one from a character, Brandon, talking about his experience with AIDS when it was first introduced as Grid, and then Carson talking about transitioning from female to male, being kicked out of his home. Where did those come from?
1: Uh, the Brandon monologue uh, actually came from a little snippet of a piece that someone wrote in the surveys. Um, and I, I think I was asking them, uh, like, what part did you play in LGBT history? If you feel like you are a part of LGBT history, how were you? And uh, this man went on to describe, you know, his experience in um, college and finding out about the AIDS crisis and the sort of uh, effect that that had on him in particular and the, the LGBT community. Um, and uh, he told this, you know, this sort of... Uh, Intense story about like trying to literally cut a mole out of his stomach because he thought it was uh, evidence of AIDS and uh, that he didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, and so that that piece came, you know, was was inspired very heavily by that that section and. Um, the Carson monologue is sort of a mishmash of quite a few stories. Um, you know, some of them are stories from the young people who I work with. Um, some of them are stories from uh, trans individuals who participated in the workshops um, and uh, who were able to give me like really Exceptional sort of specific information about what it's like growing up as a trans person and like, you know, the the different sort of levels of 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 confusion and complexity uh, in growing up uh, when there are not that many people around who can be role models and who can be, you know, out and open and uh, visible. Um, And so. You know, that as well as some, some online research about, you know, sort of the state of LGBT homelessness in uh, in the country. And, um, yeah, that is sort of how the Carson monologue came to be.
3: Did you see a lot of trans people responding to your survey?
1: Yeah, yeah. It was actually a, um, a pretty nice cross-section in terms of male-female trans. Um, I think trans was not a, whole, a full third of the uh, of the um, population who responded, but there was definitely a pretty uh, pretty solid representation.
3: Maggie, do you have any statistics off the top of your head relating to LGBT homeless youth?
1: There's an extremely high proportion. I think it's something like 40% of homeless youth identify as LGBT. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the, um, the resources in place uh, for homeless youth in general are often not sufficient for LGBT homeless youth, especially those who identify as transgender or gender nonconforming, because a lot of the homeless shelters and uh, the resources are set up in a male-female, uh, you know, dichotomy, and uh, they don't have any any help available for for young people who might identify as uh, as trans or as neither, or you know, who don't wish to identify at all. Um, there's also, you know, a, a high incidence of, of young people being rejected by families, unfortunately, you know, even even today where I feel like, you know, those of us who live in New York City are like, oh, everything's getting, you know, getting so good. You know, everyone's accepting. But the reality is uh, there is still a huge incidence of, of young people who are rejected uh, by their families when they come out.
3: What do you plan to do next with Queering History? You had this really star-studded kind of reading of it that I went to and was excellent, phenomenal, but what do you want to do next with it?
1: Well, thank you. Um, Yeah, I was really lucky in that I had incredible support from the Broadway community, uh, as well as from the staff and uh, folks at Green Chimneys who put up with me having rehearsals in their offices and things like that. Um, and, uh, I'm not sure what the next steps are. Uh, you know, the, the reading offered some great opportunities and some people who came up afterwards and, you know, I've, I've got their cards and things and sort, we're sort of chatting and, and seeing what can happen next. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a uh, free flying from here on out. So we'll see.
3: So this isn't the first play that you've written. Uh, you wrote from the inside out, which, uh, dealt with self-injuring an issue that faces youth and especially with LGBT youth. Uh, It premiered at the Fringe or was at the Fringe Festival in 2008. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um. So my when I was in college, uh, I ended up writing a paper about uh, the incidences of self injury among LGBT individuals. And uh, self injury is something that people don't like to talk about, and there is very little information about it, uh, both in you know statistical, uh, academic ways, or you know in uh, support uh, sorts of ways. And uh, as a young person, I was faced with the, the, the problem of feeling like there wasn't any, um, anything out there that represented me in the things that I was reading. It was either very clinical or it was very sensationalized. Um, and, uh, so I started, uh, from the inside out where I did interviews with a number of self-injurers and friends and family of self-injurers and got the real voices of the people who are actually dealing with it. Um, and, uh, it, uh, it it caused a bit of controversy uh, because it is something that people are really scared to talk about. Um, because it is something that's you know. Uh Something that's happening in a very high incidence in our schools and in our, you know, colleges and, and into adulthood and something that people just don't want to uh, touch on. Um, so I was able, really lucky in that the Oberlin Theatre Department totally supported me in, in creating the play and then got to do a presentation of it at the Fringe uh, later on and then did a East Coast tour a little bit later after that.
3: What was some of the LGBT connection uh to from the inside out?
1: Well, uh, there's uh, at least from when I was doing the research, absolutely no statistical information about the incidence of self-injury among LGBT individuals. That said, uh, having worked so much in LGBT communities, uh, I've seen it there quite a bit. Um, and if you think about it, it really makes sense because a lot of the impetus for self-injury is uh, based in shame and secrecy and feeling uh, disconnection to the body um, and feeling angry at yourself, um, which is which are things that a lot of LGBT youth have to deal with in a sort of disproportionate way. Um, and so, you know, self-injury is sort of a way to keep on going through the uh, through. The tough parts, um, and obviously not an ideal way to keep on going through the tough parts, but it's something that uh, a lot of young people struggle with, and that's sort of their only coping mechanism in those times.
3: We've been talking with Maggie and Bulger today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Since this interview was recorded, Green Chimney's programming for LGBTQ youth in New York City has been scaled back as a result of extreme budget cuts and other issues. While Maggie keenan bulger still keeps in contact with many of the youth, she no longer works as a freelancer for the organization.
2: You can listen to a reading of Queering History, a play Maggie wrote in collaboration with LGBTQ youth, online at mfpg.org. Click on Outcasting Listen. That's it for this edition of Outcasting. Public Radio's LGBTQ Youth Program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program was produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Lester, Nicole, Sydney, Travis, and me, Josh. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported, independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at mfpg.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. I'm Josh. Thank you for listening.
0: Join us again next time. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit MFPG.org and click on support and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.